All right. Episode two. August 7th, 2023. It's a Monday. Uh, Ken and I are jumping on to uh, dive into our second opportunity to talk with everybody and hopefully hone our podcast recording skills. Um, we were just catching up a little bit before the show and uh, kind of going over how we want to handle these episodes going forward. And uh, I think kind of how we're going to structure it, like we were chatting with, was, uh, you know, the front end of the episode playing catch up with uh, kind of what's happened in the last week since we talked to each other. Um, then we're going to do some Q&A. Um, for those of you that don't know, on our Instagram pages over the over the last few days, we put up some Q&A stuff in our stories for anybody that might have questions about us or our processes or our mindsets or how we, you know, what we think about uh, with regard to manufacturing. So we decided we're going to take a, a bit of time in the middle of the podcast to kind of uh, go over some of those questions and chat about them. And then we were going to close the episodes with just a look at what we have in the week ahead. Um, just kind of a, a simple structure that keeps us on task, me specifically, because <laughs> I have a tendency to babble. But uh, so, yeah, I think that's what we're going to be doing going forward. Yeah, it would be cool. We get uh, listening to the other episode, mainly just to test all the audio and see how the video was good. I listened to it a little bit in the car and on my headphones on the speakers and stuff. And uh, yeah, we did. At least I know I was. I was trying to continue the conversation quite a bit because it's obviously it's exciting. So, um, yeah, it'd be good kind of accountability for both of us and realized too listening to it that my audio gain was way too high and google chrome kept bumping it up 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 you know so that was a little bit of feedback but um it's all fixed now so i think this should be a lot better um but again growing pains and kind of you know new to all this stuff so even though we've both been on podcasts before as guests so we're noobs on the production side that's for sure yeah but uh also you know feedback from listeners if you experience anything that you're like, Hey, this was off or I struggled with this, please let us know because I got to be honest with you. I have like zero intention of listening back to these because I don't like listening to myself talk. (laughs) And so I would not pick up on the nuances uh, like a listener might. So please like, obviously feel free to shoot us a message and let us know if you experience any technical difficulties with the podcast stuff on your end. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, because there's podcasts, some of my favorite podcasts. I just I don't really listen to them because the audio is very hard to hear or whatever. So um, yeah, it's amazing how disconcerting that is when you're trying to listen to something. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Anyways, what? Cool. Let's yeah. see. It's Monday. We talked the middle, like last Tuesday or Wednesday. I think we were yeah, a little bit Tuesday. behind. But yeah. uh, how was the weekend? What'd you get into? Anything in the shop? Or was it just family yeah. stuff? I was on uh, Saturday. Was family stuff for the most part. Um, my wife. Uh, She's going back to work now at a salon. So Fridays and Saturdays. Uh, so Saturday I took the boys, I met up with my buddy Donnie and we went to a, a local park they got a big splash pad, but got there. Splash pad was closed, but the city ended up getting two huge inflatable water slides, massive oh, water rad. slides. So yeah, Hudson uh, just played in those for a while with my buddy's kids. And then Grace was crawling around a bunch. Um, so it was cool. Yeah, we did that on Saturday, and then I got out in the shop a little bit Saturday night, and then yesterday I was out here all day, finished up all those slides, um, got most of the stuff done that I had uh, that I wanted to do. I, I had a whole pile of slides that I mentioned last week, and then I ended up getting a bunch more, so I just kept going on those things. So nice. today I'm yeah, when you when you get running, it's tough to break continuity. You might as well run everything. Yeah, yeah. Beginning of the week too. Uh, I had a I had that big job last week. It was last week. Uh, it, whatever. And, uh, I ended up having to pull out most of my tools that I use for slides and it pretty much cross over to all the knife stuff. They're all very similar. I had to pull all that stuff out to make room because all of the tools that I had, you know, were like that big reamer right there is, you know, monstrous reamer and a bunch of long tools is going five inches through some stuff. So I pulled all that out, but putting it all back in, I didn't want to put it back in the same kind of random order in the umbrella that I had it in before. Cause I was just basically building tools as I needed them when I first got mm-hmm. this. And then things kind of stayed right there, but there was no order to it. So I redid all of my tool list and fusion. I redid all of the order in the machine. So now everything is just kind of sequential. It's, you know, it's probe and then a chamfer tool. And then it's both biggest to smallest and all the tools. Is your probe Um, tool, is your probe tool one? uh, 20 on here. Okay. Um, I mean, you could make it whatever you want, but both of your machines are umbrella tool changers, right? No, this one, the super minimal side mount. The oh, it CF2 is, huh? Yeah. The, yeah. I oh, wish yeah, they were I both side it. mount. I love having, I mean, obviously there's a litany of reasons you want to have side mount, but 
yeah, yeah. i loved it i love having it over here in the umbrella it just annoys me i mean i can't do anything about it but i absolutely can't stand umbrella tool changers yeah th- not only do you get chips easily stuck on the tapers which is always a z issue um but the problem on Haas specifically is side mount tool changers. You can renumber any tool number to whatever you want. You have what 200 yep. offsets on there. You can make tool set or pocket seven tool 200 if you want or whatever. Um, but on the umbrella tool changers, Haas doesn't allow you to renumber the pockets. So you can't have a tool library of 200 tools or whatever it mm-hmm. is. You can only just, use 20. Yeah. You, you have all the offsets in there. Super counterintuitive. It's retarded. So yeah, there's it has all the pages and everything where you can do it, but it just doesn't it doesn't take. So it's very frustrating. I know that's a big issue with the umbrella tool changers and hundred percent. Yeah, master tool library. It's like every time you're putting anything on an umbrella, you got to renumber it. So there's ways to have five five tool ones. You know what I mean? It's just like okay, that's like the one time you need a tool tag with an offset number. You know, just so that you're. But I mean, like you said, you have a macro. For touching all your tools off so you can go through it pretty quickly without issue it's super fast yeah i just wrote a little alias program for it um and it just calls up the uh the renishaw g65 program and then on the instead of calling up a tool number it just calls t3026 which is the system variable for current tool in the spindle so it just basically touches off the current tool that's in the spindle and puts that value to the current tools length offset nice um, and then there's an m0 and then at the end it's it calls up um an m6 it's a M6 in that one. Um, so it's M6 T 3026 plus one. So it just automatically changes to the next tool in the carousel. So you just can cycle start all the way through it, load it up, cycle start, load it up. So it makes it really fast if you're doing sequential stuff in there, or if I just change a tool out, um, like if a 16th breaks, whatever, which is the most common tool that I swap, I'll take that out. I'll retorque, you know, put a new one in, clean it, uh, torque it, and then throw it in. And then just, um, MDI M506 and that runs through that alias program. So, or to that sub program. Nice. So it's cool. Oh, cause uh, you, have op, you, have, you have op stops between them, right? So that like you're, you can just run current tool. It won't keep cycling, right? It'll stop itself after each tool and give you the option. Yeah. To cycle start again. Yeah. There's a hard stop. There's an M zero in there. So it'll stop no matter what. So nice. It makes it, yeah. It makes I'm it huge on, cool. you can kind of see behind me. I have a master tool list on the side of both machines and like, that's a really important part of my process and interchangeability continuity tool one through tool 19 in both machines is the exact same um, so that I can more or less throw, you know, obviously I have to tweak, you know, off, you know, my uh, wear offsets if I need to, depending on what I'm cutting, but um, that way everything's interchangeable program wise. And then if I have some oddball stuff, like, you know, a part that needs a different tool and I don't want to interrupt it over here because I have like five extra tool position or tool numbers, I can throw, you know, those parts over here and without having to interrupt any anything else. And that's what that little board behind me is right there is tool, you know, 20 through 24, just whatever is actually in there, just so I can quickly glance around. Those are like small efficiencies, right? Like just things that, uh, yeah, you know, my, that my make my process, my process. Everybody has a little nuanced stuff. Yeah, that stuff definitely helps. I'm building all my stuff in Google Sheets uh, with all that EDP numbers and I don't really mess too much with like tool length offsets because I've got a tool probe in there. So it takes longer for me to actually type something in and worry about fat fingering it and smashing something than it does is just touch the tool off. So lengths for me are never an issue. And it's so accurate too, that I've really had almost no issues trying to blend stuff. I know we've talked about that before, but I've never really needed to tune anything to blend floor finishes. But also I like finishing floors with whatever the smallest tool I'm using too. So um, it's a waste of time, but it looks really good. 100%. So, I love a small step over. It always looks sexy, whether or not you burn a couple extra minutes running that little <laughs> yeah. micro tool around, but is what Whatever. it is. Yeah. yeah. The only issues I ever have, it seems like if I'm like getting lazy and like finishing a floor with like a tool that's been doing a lot of roughing and like, you know, maybe I didn't tighten the collet down enough and it's kind of, you know, moved out a thou or two somehow. And then all of a sudden I'm digging into the floor and blow a number and it's like, yeah, probably we should get a little bit more put a little more thought into like my tools, you know, what I'm doing with what, but you know, sometimes you yeah. are a lazy bum and it doesn't always work out, but yeah, you know, you need those checks, but yeah, I mean, that sounds like you had a good weekend. Did you, uh, so you finish up slides. You, uh-huh. uh, do you have any more slides this week or are you done for the time? No, I finished everything. Um, I finished all of them last night, so I'm going to 
drop some some of them the the shop that i do slide stuff for they're not open on mondays so i'm going to drop those off tomorrow and then the other ones i'm dropping off today to saracote um, nice so yeah i had a buddy who actually just went around his work and collected as many slides as he could and brought them all over so might as well cool. set up and knock yeah. them out exactly every single one was different but you know it was cool though so that was nice uh, cool thing about doing all the slide stuff is the cash flow is really good um there's no terms. There's none of that. So it's like, I don't ship them until I get paid. I don't drop them yeah. off. I don't, I'm not going to leave really unless I get paid. So it works out really well. Yeah. You make, they pay. That's the way to do it. Especially if they yeah. need stuff, that's for certain. Yeah. And there's always that kind of uncomfort the first couple of times you go or it's like, Hey, you got to pay me. But you know, now it's just, you know, it's a routine now. So it works out really well. Easy um, peasy. And then, yeah. So today I'm going to pretty much just, I got, uh, some of those extrusions, but I'm going to just be bandsawing pretty much all day and then get the mill going as soon as we're done with this. So I've built a long, really tall fixture. It's like 12 something inches tall with a vice on top of it sideways. So I can hold real long parts. Um, so I'm going to get that in, but I had to write a safe tool change program for it so that it moves the table all the way away from the spindle and the tool yeah. change side so that, uh, so it, it basically retracts the spindle to Z four inches positive, moves the table all the way to the side. And then, it does the tool change with an M16 instead of M6 because M6, you just alias code in the control. So you can basically alias any program to uh, whatever code you want. And if you have an alias program or like an alias G or M code, it prioritizes those over the factory M code. So if you alias nice. M6, you don't have to change your posts at all. You just tell it um, what program number to run when you call up M6. And that's that safe tool tool change program. And then within that, instead of M6, you just use M16, which is that's interchangeable right. with M6. And then at the end, it just jumps back and then it runs. So the normal program runs exactly the same straight out of Fusion. You don't have to change anything. Um, just on the control, you just turn that alias code on and off. Um, so it works really well because I've got real long tools and then a really long fixture, like everything would just crash. You know, probe is even too long to come over the top without wow. coming over. So I'll send you some pictures of it. It's pretty cool. I'd love to check that out. Yeah, I got to protect yeah. the probe, man. That's for sure. Yeah. You have a Halo on yours? I have Halos on both of them, yeah. Thankfully, nice. I've never had any yeah. issues with them, but, you know, sometimes I, too, get too speedy and, like, you know, point three becomes three, you know, and before yeah. you know it, you're going way too deep. I've seen a, I've not had it happen, and honestly, like, I haven't crashed a probe, knock on wood, since probably, like, the second year that I started running CNC machines. But that still was like one of the worst experiences of my life, like oh, burying sure. the stylus in and like completely crunching the body. And like, yeah, I mean, until like to this day, even like when I would train guys at, you know, my last job, it was like rule number one is like protect the probe because nobody wants to be indicating in parts every day no, it while it's out getting fixed. You know what I mean? And then I mean, I even think that like a Renishaw repair and you know, we didn't even have like these, the whatever, the 40s, the smaller probes like. The probes I had were like big, like six and a half inch bodies that were like the size of a damn Coke can. They're still Renishaws, but just older ones. And I mean, I think it was like four, four grand to get them fixed, you know, and like it took them yeah. five or six weeks. They wouldn't even just they wouldn't even just send you a replacement. It was we're going to fit straight up fix your probe and who knows how long that takes. And anybody that's ever had to indicate parts in for a consistent amount of time knows that that absolutely sucks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a time suck. Renishaw does have a crash replacement program now. Uh, so you can send your smashed probe to Renishaw and you basically pay the full price of a new probe. But when they get yours, they send you a, they send you a new one or maybe it's refurbished, but they send you one. You, you basically buy the probe, they send you one, you send yours back and they give you a huge credit for it. So it ends up being like 1400 bucks or something for a, oh, brand, that's like it? a, a new body. Yeah. It's some, wow. it may have changed now, but it's been a few years since I looked into it, but that's um, dope. Yeah, they're doing that. Bloom is starting to do that too now, but I think you have to go through Yamazen and I think it's only one time, but you could basically buy a smashed probe, you know, from eBay or whatever, send it to Renishaw and do that whole thing and they'll give you a new Get one. Get you a $1,400 brand new probe. Exactly. Yeah. So That's there tight. is that, but yeah, thankfully now with the probe halo and stuff, like I'm a lot less sketched out about it, but you know, thank luckily or thankfully I've never smashed a probe. So. Uh, I always get worried about uh, turning like turning my spindle on with the probe in the spindle and like, you know, breaking the tip. I know like I used to have like, I don't know, I don't use them now, but like the quick break connects that go between the stylus and the body that if it goes above like 3000 RPM, the stylus will just break off and launch so that it, you know, oh, doesn't yeah. damage the internals of the probe. Definitely have done that uh, a couple of times. Yeah, you're especially when overriding like 
I mean, I'm, I don't know how you have your setup, but like both of my machines will still run with the door open. So like, oh, that yeah. was always my fear. My last job on my the Makinos I used to run, it was just a key. I don't know, like stuff yeah, you run the fast. They like, yeah. just turn it like you just straight up turn it. It's like in like you know safe mode or manual mode. Mm-hmm. And I a couple of times like I had an indicator in the spindle like on an indicall, and like one time I actually was standing out of the way at the machine control. I went to do a tool change, but somehow like didn't clear my MDI screen. Kicked on to like six thousand RPM, and my indicator shot out of this machine and hit the machine across the way and dented the hell out of the back of the sheet metal. And I'm like, dude, if, that, if I was standing in front of the machine, like the door, that would have like killed me. That yeah, was like my first like brush connect. with death. You know what I mean? Where it's like, <laughs> you know, like I don't like, I still have like nightmares, like PTSD style about that. Like oh, man, sure. I almost died. if that fucker hurt you in the face, you'd be toast. But yeah, it's wild. Um, yeah. I don't ever really do anything with the doors open. Um, unless I'm cleaning out the machine, I've got magnets. I've stuck magnets up where I'm all backwards. I stuck some magnets up there and I just stick them under the proc sensors in the doors yeah. and then the machine thinks the doors are shut. So, yeah, um, I, I just do that on one side over there. One, so obviously you need to be able to cycle it, but I took like a little end mill tube and I put mm-hmm. a piece of metal in there and like stuck it up on the proc sensor. So it oh, always yeah. thinks that that door is closed and uh-huh. you know, I can work with that door open, but yeah, I mean, sometimes I want my head in there, you know what I mean? I want to, see what's going on and if coolant's not on you know yeah the thing that's annoys me the most is that hauses have this giant width right here which is exactly in line with the spindle so if you're trying to do anything and look at the machine straight on you can't it, yep. you know, it blocks a ton of what you're actually trying to view um, it's super stupid not smart annoying. yeah so there's a bunch of little quirks but to touch back on how you were talking about spinning your probe on there um at least on the next gen controls, you can put a max RPM for a tool number. So whatever probe tool number you're is, you can just put zero as the max RPM on there and it won't turn on. I don't know any of this stuff. You know all the ins and outs of this. Like there's still things that I can't like that I can't do that are like simple things on the Haas control that annoy me, but like I haven't gone to figure out how to do what I want. Like yeah, we'll make a list. Up, but I, I need to, yeah. And then I'll be like, go over it with me because there's a lot of stuff that ticks me off. But um yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's. Yeah. Yeah, but you have that. You have more of a like you. You have to know. As where like I like I'm big. I just work around stuff. You know what I mean. I probably should like fix problems when they arise, but instead I just like do things the hard way over and over again and just be frustrated yeah. about it every time I do it. <laughs> but um, yeah. So you had a good week. What did I get into last this last yeah, week? Yeah. Um, since we chatted. Um, so I have been. The last day I, I was prepping blades, um, like taking these from like a water jetted blank. I'm prepping them for heat treat. So just like facing, you know, five aside off of them to get them to preheat treat thickness, you know, roughing in everything, chamfering everything. And I'm actually heat treating today. Um, it's a new Mac project. I have like, you know, 90 blades for this job uh, out at double disc right now after water jet to get them to, uh, to this thickness. But I held 10 back because I, I didn't think they'd be back in time. Um, and so I'm heat treating now and then those are going to get surface ground. In the meantime, I'm waiting for, um, some titanium to come back, titanium parts, frames, spacers, clips for this new job. And actually my very first Mac project, the Sonic doom, uh, we're wrapping up the last batch right now. So our commitment, our time commitment, 100 and 125 or 135 pieces is finished. We just have one last batch. And of course, over the year and some change that we've been working on it, I've scrapped all of my spare parts. And so this last batch, I actually don't have any frames for. So I had to have some, uh, the last batch of frames uh, cut out. Um, so prepping to start on that and uh, wrapping up these last Mac projects uh, for, by the 15th, which is when they're due and then starting the next month's stuff. So I've been kind of focused on doing what I can here while I wait for those titanium parts, which should be here tomorrow. Um, and then also I've been doing customs, working on customs, which has been kind of refreshing um, because I've spent so much time in the last year and a half focused on, you know, all these Mac projects that I kind of, I, I didn't really have time to do the custom stuff to the extent that I, that I really wanted to. And, uh, for the show that I just did in Portland, uh, two week or a week and a half ago, I really allocated a bunch of time in July to prepping for that. Um, and at the same time, I also cut a bunch of parts for like existing like book orders that I had, um, and so because I have that stuff laying out over here, like I've been taking some time to kind of finish, finish those up as I have, you know, runtime. So it's been pretty rad to, uh, to be able to like pretty, I mean, over the last 
a week I've kind of had like 10 customs, you know, head out of here, whether it be for the show or otherwise, which is in some years, as many as I made in, in an entire year. So it's been pretty fun to, uh, to get that stuff moving out the door. And I think people are fired up. Like I've been actually Instagram hit me up and I think that, I guess this has been happening to a lot of people, but they kind of said, Hey, we're not distributing your content to new, new people anymore. Um, as the, the ban are, or the, uh, you know, as they're just staying disgruntled towards weapons and stuff, you know, that's just the stifling and stymieing of, uh, of weapons based content. Um, so I've actually been starting to use my Facebook group more and, uh, man, I've had like a hundred and some people join in the last like week and a half. And like, people are engaging and it's pretty cool. I always kind of like brush Facebook off, but I know it's all meta, but it seems like to some extent you have a little bit more control, you know, in your Facebook group. Yeah. I, I even commented yours and two the other day, I'm like, you know, obviously it's the same company as Instagram, but it Facebook groups are so much more core and the people that are there are actually there for what you're posting or what your group is about. I have two or three Facebook groups now. Well, I've got mine for my, just my business Facebook group. And then I have, um, like an owner's group, which is still very small because there's not a lot of stuff out there, but, um, and then I have a small business machining owners group too. That's actually another really core group. There's probably like 700 something people in there now. Um, everybody's growing quick. Didn't you just, yeah, less than that, probably just a couple months, um, or whatever, but, and, uh, but yeah, it's growing pretty quick and everybody that's in there is all really cool. So I started it because a lot of the other Facebook groups are just like a mess. You know, there's all kinds of just people talking shit and everybody giving advice that they have no idea what they're talking about. And But for like for yours, it's so niche and it's so focused that everything that's being talked about in your group is obviously about your stuff, um, you know, versus Instagram where you're seeing you see posts from people that you don't even follow all the time. Like half the time all I go to my feed, I'm like, they don't even follow this person. So yeah, it's frustrating for sure. I haven't gotten that um, shadow ban notification yet, but we'll see. I mean, pretty much all I post now is knives and firearms stuff. So it'll catch up to you eventually. I mean, yeah. it's weird, right? Cause you can go and check your account status and I appealed it. So I don't know if this is why it's not showing anything, but like, I'm still green all the metrics. Like you can post, you know, you don't have anything that needs to be taken down. There's like four metrics that they have there with like green check marks next to them. So I'm still good to go. You know, I had people reach out that were like, Hey, I've been getting this message like once a month for a year and like they haven't done anything. I have other people that are like, I had stopped using Instagram because of this. So, I mean, when yeah. you have as many, I mean, how many users do they have a hundred million? You know what I mean? At some point it's like they can only police you so hard, you know? So I'm, I'm not too worried about it. We're just going to keep moving in the same, you know, whatever direction we can. I'm actually going to switch gears and start using my email list quite a bit for product distribution, just because obviously if you have 10,000 person email list and nobody can do anything about that except for unsubscribe if they don't like the content. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's the way to go. That's, that's where the power lies. You know, if the, if social media folded up tomorrow, email's not going anywhere. So that's a great way to distribute content. So I think, uh, you know, any purchases made going forward lotteries and stuff are going to require like email list um, uh, being on the email list in order to, to be able to win or, or get that kind of stuff just to kind of push people in that direction. And then I think, you know, as long as you're not giving like spamming them with crap, as long as every piece of content that you send is meaningful and like, you know, you're not sharing their information. Like I don't see any reason why anybody would unsubscribe. So that's kind of my move, but, uh, but yeah, yeah so that's good. where I've been. I think it's a good one, man. But yeah, that's where I've been at the last week, you know, kind of just status quo, trying to wrap some stuff up. Um, you know, summertime's coming to an end for the kids. And so kind of been trying to spend some time with them. Um, I'm heading to camp today, actually, this afternoon. My wife's already out there um, with some of my other family members. And we're going to, you know, swim in the pond and fish and and do some s'mores and fire stuff. And just a last hoorah for the the summer season and then, you know, move right into fall. I also realize I've done like nothing for me hunt like this time of year is hunting preparation time. Like archery season opens in two months and I haven't done any trail camera stuff. I haven't done any property management, anything. So I'm like starting to get that itch too, which is bad timing with this show coming up, you know, but that's one thing as a small business owner, sometimes your hobbies and stuff get sidelined. It's just a, you know, necessity. Mm -hmm. And like, as I've always prior, I've always said that gun to my head, if you could be an archery hunter or like make knives, like I'll choose archery hunting every day, you know? So it's a hard thing for me to do, like to not go into as prepared as I usually want to be, but we're really putting our best foot forward with the business side of things. See if we can't make this work, but, 
but yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So your kids are starting school soon, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess we have another like two weeks or whatever, but, um, it's actually a big, a big deal uh, for us because my youngest, so for people that don't know, I have five kids. My oldest is 13. My youngest just turned three a couple of days ago, but uh, my youngest is actually starting like an all day preschool, which typically that was resigned for like four year olds. But the program that we've used for like three of my four other kids um, is switching to allowing three year olds and allowing all day, which I think that means like nine to two thirty. Like it's not truly all day, but um, so yeah, I'll have, <laughs> For the first time in 13 years, I'll have all my kids in school, which is pretty wild. Um, so my wife is going to have some free time. And um, yeah, so we're looking forward to get to giving that a try. But yeah, they'll be in soon enough. And then this place is going to feel like a ghost town again during the day. No little pitter patter of feet running in and out of here, taking waters from the fridge or, you know, bringing me snacks or whatever, the, you know, whatever they do. So you're going to miss it. Grow, dude, they grow up in a hurry, man. But yeah. We'll talk about that forever. Um, I'm sure, yeah, yeah I'm, at, I'm actually kind of looking at uh, our timing here. So we're a little bit beyond where we wanted to for our first second, yeah. like as expected. But I don't yeah. know if you want to like segue into a couple of these questions from some people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, we got we got a bunch. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to get to all of them today. But um, the first one that came through, which is cool, it's uh, from August Originals. These, I think these are all from Instagram, right? And all yours coming from Instagram? Yep. Yeah. Is uh, I'm interested in getting a CNC in my shop. Any recommendations on a smaller benchtop option? Uh, I think probably one of the best options, at least from my limited uh, research on this, is all the stuff from Shapeoko or Carbide 3D, right? Uh, their Shapeoko sure. line looks pretty good. The the Five Pro, uh, I think they've all got linear rails, ball screws, uh, great service. So I would personally probably go with one of those. Like I have a Sureline CNC mill. Uh, but it's on lead screws. It's on open steppers and like it loses position and it's a cool little machine, you know, but it's tiny little 40 pound mill. Uh, so I, if I was buying something new, a bench top, something I would probably personally go with a shape Oco. Uh, if anybody has any other recommendations, let us know. You can comment, I think even right in the actual, uh, obviously YouTube comments uh, or in Spotify, there's a question on there. I think you can just answer some stuff in there or hit us up on Instagram. So, Nice. Yeah, uh, I have probably a, a couple of buddies of that have a couple of buddies that have Shibokos and like one of them cuts a lot of titanium, like finished yeah. like 3D features and stuff. And like mm. stuff looks pretty good. You know, I mean, obviously you're not going to get the off the machine finishes that you'd be looking for to like distribute finished product, but minimal handwork probably puts you in a position to uh be to the good. And I think they're only like what like twenty five hundred bucks or something. Something like that. Yeah, they're a few grand. They have a new one that they're I think it's like four or five grand for their latest, biggest, best one. Um, but even does it have an enclosure? I don't think so. Uh, I probably should pull up the website and look. But yeah, Shapeoko, check it out. That would probably be my first recommendation, um, especially for knife stuff. Anything you're doing that's real thin, kind of router-like parts, is perfect for that. I also uh, had seen like Yoni has a couple of those Axiom Precisions, mm-hmm. um, and then I actually yeah. saw one of those too when I was at Coal Ironworks. They have one for doing like handle material work seems like uh just a little bit more robust you know they also have like a nice stand and you know mm-hmm. on wheels and stuff so you have a little bit of modularity also but i think that the sh- between that and the shipoko are probably the directions that i would go yeah if i mean the, my first recommendation for anybody buying any machines is just buy a brother speedio and be done with it that's what i should have done um i think that's what everybody should do but yeah it's yeah. tough man because if you don't start small you don't appreciate you know how much better the good shit is. Yeah. Um, you know, and even like me digressing, like going from the Makino back down to like the, the Tormacher into a Haas, like there are things about lesser expensive machines that are not desirable. And it's funny because like people, you know, this is an interesting thing that I've experienced with like uh, some of the Mac guys that don't have any expectations of CNC. They think a machine is a machine is a machine. And like, there's like some surface finish stuff or like repeatability, like on the Haas, that like when you try and explain to them that like you're operating within the limitations of this machine and they're like, you have a hundred thousand dollar machine. Why is it not capable of that? And it's like, yeah, but it's not a half a million dollar machine, which is like, you know, like the, the step up from a Tormach to a Haas and then a Haas to like a Makino or even like some of the nicer Akumas or whatever, you know, you get even to a quarter million dollar machine, like just what they're capable of their look ahead, you know, mm-hmm. their smoothing and stuff. It's like, you know, 
people don't understand that there's tiers to this stuff. They just assume that you're running a robot. So it should do exactly what you want. And it's like, you know, how many times have you had like a, an, an issue with like a po with posted code? You know what I mean? Where, Hey, it looks great, great in the computer. And like you post it out and you're getting weird gouging and it's, you know, then like you can't figure it out and you're trying to talk to your customer. Like, I don't know why this is doing this. I've tried everything. It's just this weird spot in this part models. Good. I don't know what's going on. And it's like, they just don't get it, you know? So yeah, I've had that all, issue. I had that issue when I was doing application stuff. There was a customer that called us and he was like, Hey, we're using Mastercam. We're on a, we're on a brother. We're getting this weird faceting uh, tessellation on their, on their surfacing. So I go in there and it was literally just their arc filtering settings within Mastercam, which Fusion has and pretty much every cam software has arc filtering or, or at least some smoothing on there. And their settings were just way too, way too high. So it was taking the shortest path it could and it was leaving these faceted surfaces. Around. D -d 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 yeah. No blending at all. It's just point to yeah. point, little micro. So I just reprogrammed it right there on the spot. I just modeled it up and reprogrammed it, posted it and gave it to them. And then their programmer quit the next day. It's kind of, kind of a shitty situation, but I mean, Hey man, it's sometimes there are some backend settings like fusion has some tr uh, surface triangulation settings. Um, if you right click the tool path, you go to compare and edit and then search for, for tolerance, just TOL. It'll pop up. There's only like 10 things on there. It's surface triangulation tolerance, make that setting way smaller and hundred percent. Your 3d tool paths will be way smoother than they were before. I guarantee it. Tightens um, it right up. Yeah. It, because it's at least on fusion, it's making basically like a tessellated model in the back end, As far as I understand it, um, that's based off of your tolerance and all your smoothing settings and everything. And it's programming off of that. Uh, so if you have a huge tolerance on there, it's making this big faceted kind of low poly type, whatever model in the back end, and it's just following whatever that is. So, so for yeah. the, uh, for the users, when you're saying like a really big tolerance, like what would be considered a really big tolerance in that parameter? I think anything more than a few thou. Normally okay. I'll set my, just my basic tolerance. I set to five tenths and then my arc filtering or smoothing tolerances I'll do just kind of rule of thumb, like four times bigger than that. I just have a calculation in their equation. It's taking my tolerance setting times four. So it's usually like around two thou. Okay. Uh, See mine's that's two really, tenths, two tenths, uh, absolute. And then I use a one thousandths, um, yeah. arc tolerance, which uh -huh. seems to be just fine. Yeah, and if you're cutting a round bore, it's gonna just do whatever it needs to do. I mean, it's gonna yeah, post out as an IJ circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Circle. It's the same thing. So it's not like it's gonna be two thousand small or whatever. You know, it's just so. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of what, we get. We deep dive, right? This was asking about a basic benchtop CNC, and now we're talking about surface tessellation and like yeah. <laughs> arc smoothing tolerances. Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's guys that know this stuff way more detailed as far as you know what it's actually called and all that i know how to get it done um but so. we're supposed to be catering this podcast to machinists that are making knives and guys that yeah. are you know we, in, i'm not saying they're not saying them type of dudes are dumb but you know maybe we're better off trying to keep it a little bit less technical it's hard though yeah. and that's how you think that's how you talk you know it just is what yeah. it is i'm partially but, retarded uh, too, so. um you're just on the spectrum man that's all thoughts, that it yeah. is getting some of these thoughts out is kind of tough for me i don't know all the words so, um, yeah, there was a few other ones on here. Do you want to go over any of these other ones? I mean, I want to go um, over We're going to, we could easily, yeah, you, you there's want, some on here that we could easily talk for a couple hours on, like, uh, uh, easily. Um, yeah, I mean, why, why don't we pick a simple one? Like, what drives you to continually improve? Like, it's pretty open-ended, but yeah, like, I think that, I think for us, be, because of how we are, that's a question. There's a lot of people that find a way to do something, especially, like, guys that are, like, new to CNC, and their goal is just to find something that works, not necessarily to improve a process to be as efficient as possible. And uh, so I think that for us, because we've spent our careers problem solving, looking for efficiencies um, and co continuing to improve, continually improving for like whatever company we're working for. I think that the reason I try and continually improve is just because I'm addicted to finding efficiencies. You know, like once your programs are running, we're finding like small nuances in like how how tools are moving between sequences or like you know trying to improve our roughing strategies for tool life you know like at some point if you're not chasing those things it, it can get kind of it can get kind of monotonous like you're just more or less in a in a production environment where you're just hitting the green button over and over again and if 
you know, you get you stare at something like that long enough with the right eye, you're gonna see things that you can improve. Um, so I, I think probably a lot of mine just out of boredom. I don't know what where yours comes from, but that's <laughs> yeah. definitely for me. Yeah, I, I just enjoy the process of that stuff. I I mean, I, I don't care too much. I mean, I do, but when I talk about like continuous improvement, I'm not really talking too much about like lean manufacturing as far as, you know, I don't want to twist and do this. I don't want to have to reach or bend. Like I end up doing that all the time because I'm in my little garage. So um, for me, the continuous improvement stuff is mainly really over process, uh, process reliability, process efficiency. Um mainly from the point of CAD through cam, through setup, through like parts, um, trying to handle parts less uh, by improving surface finishes or by probing and taking spring passes and doing all that stuff. So for me, I, I enjoy the process. I enjoy trying to figure out some of these puzzles uh, of like, why is this part taking this long? You know, it shouldn't take that long. It should take this long. And then going through the cam if I can, or just going through the actual posted code and something like Simcoe or any kind of backplotter and seeing, all right, well, this drill's going up and it's feeding from the clearance plane at three inches up above it. Cause it had to clear a clamp. And now the cycle times 45 minutes when it should have been yeah. six. Why is you it know, not rapiding, rapiding down to your, you know, plane, yeah. Yeah, your point one. It, that was actually something that I went through uh, a couple jobs ago before when I transitioned from working on the shop floor as a setup guy into a manufacturing engineer, I was running a job. They were making three parts an hour on it. They ran the job at a loss, but it was part of a family of parts that they were making and doing a sub assembly for. So they had to make so making, it. making money on the sub assembly as a whole, but losing money on that component. Exactly. And everybody that would run that job had to no man that job where it was nobody could log time on it. Just anybody that was around that was free had to make sure that thing kept running. So every, you know, it was three parts uh, on the setup. The cycle time took like an hour and I ended up, I was running the mill right next to it when I started. So I was running that one. I was running a brother right behind me. It was a Mori, a brother, and then most of them were Mori's on that area. So um, I was running that job just basically loading and doing some inspection while I was prioritizing a couple other machines. And I watched the cycle the first couple of times that it ran just to get familiar with the parts and get familiar with how all the tools were running and everything. And just watching it in the very first cycle, there was literally a drill that was going up three inches to clear some stuff. And it was feeding from three inches above all the way down. And I asked the guys, I'm like, what the hell's going on with this? Like, did anybody even realize this? This job has been running for like 15 years. Who knows how long that had been happening, but uh, they're like, oh yeah, but we don't log time onto it. We don't care. I'm like, well, I'm going to fix this shit. So I ended up just fixing all that stuff, cut a bunch of time off of it. And then they were roughing with a one inch kind of metal, um, indexable in mill three flute and nobody liked running it because when those things would go, they would go, um, they didn't have like tool life and stuff really dialed on it. So, and the guys in the shop floor didn't know any better. So they would just run it until the insert would pop and then they would go swap it out. And uh, so I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to put a seven flute, half inch solid carbide end mill in here, run an adaptive tool path on it. And then ended up going back in and doing some double angle stuff and uh, changed up a lot of the tools. We got rid of like five tools on that job and got it down to from three parts an hour to about nine parts an hour on that oh, one. Oh, so you tripled uh, the efficiency. Yep. And the tool life went way up. Perishable tooling cost went way down. Uh, we did a lot of studies on all that. There's actually a question on here about... Um, kind of diminishing return and stuff. And, you know, at what point is the profit margin not worth the wear and tear? Um, that kind of came into play with that whole thing where it's like, all right, we're going to test this tool. How many minutes can we get for this tool? We can push it harder, but we're going to go less tool life on it, but our output's going to be higher. So we're actually going to be making more money, even though we're spending more on perishable tooling. Um, so there's a fine line in there with you know, figuring out the calculations and stuff and doing that all in Excel and Google Sheets is something that I've worked on for years trying to get, you know, a really, really dialed um, and repeatable calculation for that kind of stuff where you can just plug in your price and plug in your tool life and it'll tell you where that point of diminishing return is. But um, yeah, not to uh, downplay that question. I think that's one that we're going to get into at a later date just because it involves sure. a lot more. But um, yeah, 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 I, I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do in the background, too. Right. Like, you know, slower, slower cycle time 
if you have a lot to be doing with your hands, to me, sometimes it's an upside, like to a fault, right? A lot of times at my last job where they were just counting spindle up time and you'd see guys turn down feed rates or be less aggressive because, hey, the spindle's running. We're making less parts, but at least the spindle's running. I never agreed with that, but there are times where if I'm making a custom and I just want to keep the machines running in the background and I don't want an eight-minute cycle time for a backspacer, I would prefer that if it was 15 minutes. I'm not saying I would tune that down, but I certainly would choose to run a part that took a little bit longer um, when I'm not just having a an attended machining day. Um, and so for a machine like that where you're not logging time, you know, not distracting guys from like the jobs they're trying to be attended onto with a little bit longer cycle time. Like even if it means less parts per hour, but less downtime, like you may, it might maybe a wash. Like that's a hard thing to factor in, right? It's like, well, what if guy a takes three shits a day and he misses that, you know, you know, when, when the machine shuts off and he's not there to switch the parts, like you lost that time anyways. And like you're paying for the tooling because you're working, you know, you're running them harder as it is, you know, there's always that balance, but um, yeah, that's a, something I think we fight on every job we do. It's just about that comes down to in a one man shop, just like your own personal logistics. You know what I mean? Planning. Exactly. Know, if, you're running, if I'm running two machines and I'm trying to heat treat and I'm trying to finish machines or, or finish knives, I'm in there grinding away from that's the other thing. My grinding rooms enclosed. I have a window, but I can't see the super mini mill from that window. So I can't tell if the red light's beeping. I have to have a timer on my watch running that gives me an alarm two minutes before the machine shuts off so that I'll run out here and be ready to switch parts. Exactly. You know, so it's, you know, you're building your efficiencies around, you know, who you are and how you do things. But um, yeah, totally. That's like yeah, the I question, what's your Go biggest ahead. bottleneck? And that for sure is my just me. I know for yep. sure that I'm the biggest bottleneck in here because I'm busy with my family or I'm I get distracted easily with stuff and um, there's just constant distractions. I'll be looking for a tool and I'll find a knife that I haven't found in a while and I'll pull that out. Now I'm playing with this for freaking 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, dude, it's too like, easy, man. I remember yeah. when you got that thing, that thing's badass. but, um, yeah, it's cool. yeah, I used, I used to be, it used to be me, I think. Um, but I've had to put in, set some boundaries. Like it's tough in the summertime, but like my wife knows, you know, when I'm working, I'm working. And like, if it's something that can wait, she'll wait to, to, to approach me about it. Um, the mm -hmm. kids will kind of leave me be. So I've really been getting in the zone, especially as my schedule has been filling up more and more. Like I know you have a lot of kind of flexibility, you know, with just working on job shop stuff. Now that I'm beholden to a lot of people every month for like component assemblies and like I have no time to be late. You know, if I'm if I'm four days late, then that's four days less time that I have to get the next month stuff uh, rolling in so a compound. So I'm working really hard to stay on track. Um, and so. Yeah, I don't tend to have too many issues with personal bottlenecks for me, just for the sake of finishing the question. Um, my biggest issues stem around like processing of blades, just because with any titanium component, right? Like you get the parts water jetted, you do op one, you do op two, they're done in house, everything's finished. With blades, that's the only thing that I'm outsourcing stuff for beyond water jet. So, like, you know, the blade material comes in from water jet and I'm sending it to double disc to get it to within 10 thousandths of finished thickness. Then I'm doing preheat treat machining and these bigger batches that I'm outsourcing heat treating. Then I'm having them drop ship directly from heat treat right to the lapping company that I use. And they're getting me the parts to my final thickness. Well, it's like when everybody's lead time is five days to three weeks, you know, you're trying to communicate with everybody, but you know, that's where I'm having the, the biggest struggle is like, how can I change my process for, you know, for these last batch of, of uh, Mac knives, I had all the blades wire EDM'd. But that was an even bigger thing, which is like heat treat to lapping, lapping to wire EDM. You know, we had some issues with wire where parts had to be reworked. And then I had to get some custom hardware to make them work. You know, they're dealing with all these things. A job that on paper probably should have only taken like a month between four shops ended up taking like two and a half months. So now we're back mm -hmm. to the drawing board of like, OK, how can we how much if I'm not wiring things, what do I have to do preheat treat versus how much of it do I want to do post heat treat like? The first batch of blades, the, the dooms, when I did them, I left 50 thousandths on the profile thinking like, OK, yeah. yeah, that's good. And like I have a hardened steel machining background, like 50 thousand, not that much. Well, I also wasn't paying for tooling back then. And mm -hmm. also I was running a three hundred and seventy five thousand dollar Makino and not doing them on a super mini uh, fifty thousand dollar Haas, you know, yeah. so like there's not the rigidity. And then when you're sitting there, you know, 2D contouring 50 thousandths off, stepping over 
5,000 to pass and still blowing through an $80 end mill in 10 parts. You know what I mean? Like you have to be cognizant of, of those changes, but um, yeah, so that's my biggest bottleneck and that's where I'm spending the most of my time is uh, finding better ways to manufacture blades. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's my biggest hang up right now. I think. Yeah. When we were originally talking about the datums, it was really because you've done so many now, since I did them. And when I did them, I did them way different than I want to do them now, where I would basically do all of my machining soft. Everything was soft. The only thing that I would leave stock on would be the flats. Then I would leave five thou per side or 10 thou total on that. And then they would go to heat treat. They'd come back. I'd finish surface grinding and then I would finish the pivot bore. but everything else was done. Um, all, and then all of the sharpening and all of the lock fitting and everything would be done by the customers typically. I don't want to do that now because with the design of the datum, I have to make sure that these primaries are dead nuts straight um, or else the primary is going to contact the blade or the, the frames. Yep. Um, oh, cause you have that little trough in the uh, integrated backspacer, right? So you have yeah. no margin for how much do you, what kind of clearance do you yeah. have from the primary to that V like 5,000? I have it modeled right now. Everything has 10,000 clearance all around it. So there's 10,000 okay. gaps between the frames and the blades um, there's 10,000 gaps between the actual primaries and stuff. Um, I probably should just screen share some of that stuff. Maybe next next episode we'll jump on and I'll kind of screen share some of that and try and focus a little bit more, I think, on kind of our process on this stuff. Because I definitely want to get into that more because I do need to figure out what my next five or so weeks are going to be like on datums because now I'm going to probably be done with everything else. Um, Crunch time, motherfucker. Within the next couple of days. So then I, I have to do nothing but knife stuff um so that was kind of what we originally started talking about was like all right i have all i have 10 different ways i want to make these blades i don't know which one's going to be the best one where i'm going to be roughing everything before heat treat and then come back and finish after heat treat um which is kind of where i'm at i left 5,000 stock on all the profiles including the stop pin track the window the outside profiles i left 5,000 on the primaries and then because of the blade thickness uh, the stock that i had i only had three thou per side for surface grinding um so i didn't even touch the faces but i bought actually uh, ground material from i think it was from aks uh, for this magnet cut so for this one uh, i just need to remove five thou from all the surfaces and then finish all the chamfers but i i'm concerned because i don't have any frames i haven't made my frames yet so i actually want to make some frames before i finish my first blade so that i can actually test Primarily in the need, closed position. need to be able to test the symbol for sure. Because yeah, because I, I need not even so much just for the detent, um, but I haven't cut any detent yet. I haven't finished the stop pin track yet. There's still, like I said, five thou per side on there, and even you know one thou all the way out here might translate to fifteen thou at the tip. Dude, you it's know, a lot. Depending on sure. depending that on the radius of your stop pin track and how far your blade is and everything, and the way that I design knives. I, I primarily design my stuff in the closed position more so than the open position. I think for me personally, the closed position is the most important out of all of it. And you look at all these knives and like, wow, that looks awesome when it's open, but it looks like, you know, ass, when ass it's ugly when it's closed. It's more yes. like, why is there... the so this is one of the finished ones. This is one that, that best tech made um, one out of three. Um, so in the closed position, everything is flush. Like the blade is, I'm not trying to do this all backwards. The blade is completely flush with that. Um, the tip drops down a few thou in there. Uh, but the datum, actually, all of these gaps are gone. Those are those big triangle gaps. They're completely gone. I mean, there's a V in there for this one, but I ended up removing the backspacer. The frames meet in the middle, and then it's all surfaced where that is. Um, nice. So everything is completely closed. So it's extremely critical for me to have some form of frame or at least a functional gauge made that I can put it in. So, you know, I'll put it down the primary of the secondary will be the pivot. And then the tertiary will be the end of the stop pin track in the closed position or a tertiary for the open position. I'd probably have two different ones where it's got to go to a specific position and then set up an indicator on there to where I can dial that in to where, all right, I know that's going to be zero. So it you know drops on the fixture, rotates to a, a drop indicator, and then I can verify that value right there. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm going to plan on doing for the blades, but I need to make some frames first and I need to kind of develop all that stuff. Um, so I'm going to probably get those blades back from you anytime now, I would imagine. Yeah, I got I got to pack them. I got to pack them up. They're sitting over there. I actually have to ship a knife cool. today and I'm going out of town. So I was going to pack those up, 
pack this knife up, drop them off at the post office on my way out the door. So you'll have them. Awesome. Um, yeah. That yeah. That's for out. sure. I, I would something like I've been bitten by that stop pin track too many times. Like you just, Oh, I only left five thou in there. So I'll just profile it finished with like an eighth inch bull nose. But then like, you don't realize that it's deflecting a half or seven tenths or a thousandths mm -hmm. when you can't check it in the assembly without, um, grinding that tab off of there because the blade won't close you grind exactly. the tab off you go to put it in there and the tip is sticking up ten thousandths because you had a thou still in there so i've yeah. just gotten in the habit of like redundantly cutting that even if it means an extra five minutes per part i'll rough mm -hmm. it semi-finish it and finish it with a tool just so that i know that every time that that wall is going to be true because that is like then you're getting in there and I'm sitting there with a Dremel or like I, I chuck up on a, an eighth inch end mill in my mill and I bring it down the quill down and I lock it and I'm sitting there manually routering the end of the stop pin track tank and a couple of thousands <laughs> out of there. And it's just, it sucks. You have to do yeah, it because you can't set it back up. I mean, I take that back. I can set up this magnetic sign plate in the machine, hold the blade, you know, on there and remachine the stop pin track that way. But like, it's just a big time, time suck. So like I try and avoid that stuff, and uh, that's something I definitely will redundantly recut. And it's not as big of a difference, big deal in the open position, because who notices ten thousandths different blade opening exactly. at the tip? You know what yeah. I mean? But it's exactly. so it's so apparent when it's in the closed position that you, you have mm -hmm. to be careful. Um, yeah, I have I have the tip dipping down probably ten or fifteen thousand, so that there's no risk of catching your finger on that. That's always been yeah. an issue on some where you can actually feel the edge. Hell um, yeah. This one, this one's buried in there pretty good. And with the V, it's real close, so I can't do it on here. But one of the ones that I got from Best Tech, it actually sticks out just a little bit. Um, so I can I can catch my finger on it if I'm going. You can catch it. You know, you you can open yourself up real bad on a tip like that. People don't know. Oh, yeah. Stick it up five thousandths. If you make a five thousandths laceration the entire length of your knuckle, like you're going to be That's bleeding awesome. like crazy. You yeah, know? Awesome. Yeah. The one nice thing is, you know, you always can, if you need to, in a pinch, set up and just kiss the tip on the grinder. Um, mm -hmm. especially because is, the datum has arc and arc, the top of it is an arc. Mm -hmm. You can blend that as we're on the transient. It's very, it's, it's a straight line. So yeah. you'll, it's a very noticeable dip. If you have like a double angle or something on there versus blending the end of your arc segment. Mm -hmm. So you have a little bit of flexibility there. Um, yeah, I was thinking yeah, about obviously off the machine you want to be dialed. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I could grind it, but then I'd have to grind the chamfers too. I didn't put a swedge on here. I do like swedges, but I didn't put a swedge on here because I want this thing as flush as possible when it's closed. Yep. Uh, that was the primary driver on this whole thing. There was a question actually on here about design and stuff, doing some unique stuff. So for me personally, it's designing something when it's in the closed position. Um, and we had talked about logos too. I'm probably going to do logo on because the pocket clip is so big. There's so much real estate on here. I think I'm going to probably do how I do my slides. Um, I'll do the outline and then I'll do a parallel tool path of the, the floor on it uh, yeah. just on the fat part of the pocket clip. So when it's in your pocket, it's upright. Uh, I was thinking about maybe even doing one up here on this face, but I think on the pocket clip school should be. I think doing it on a flat surface versus like on the 3D is probably smart to start. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just I hate I'm not a big bill, I don't like billboarding. You know what I mean? Like I don't I really don't like when it's like flamboyant on the show side, you know, like on the yeah. block side, not as big of a deal, but I want the show the open the show side of the open position to be just mm -hmm. deadly clean. Um so actually like I when I was making those for you, I actually put your logo on the inside of the frame. You could still see yeah. it visibly from the closed position, but like yeah, I think that the clip is a nice place. Obviously, that's where I just landed on putting my logo too. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm I'm really I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, it looks good. Uh, that or inside too. Inside's cool. When I did all those blades for boost, I um, diamond dragged inside the frames and it was just a simple outline diamond drag after it was all kind of Sasha finished, Sasha gray, which is really just a uh, aggressive media blast and then rubbed it with uh, white lithium grease to make it secrets dark. out. Kind of, secrets yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so it gives a real nice dark gray finish. But also, uh, we do the grease to darken it, but it, you don't get fingerprints. No fingerprints. Get, I still do that to this I, day. I do it on everything. And uh, you got to give. You got to give. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> yeah, there's probably some credit where it's due. I'm sure. Um, so I do it on pretty much everything, even like my slingshots and stuff. The inlays, like I'll rub them with grease, uh, not the anodized ones, but all the blasted ones. But I'll do a mix of like blast and then grease, or blast a little bit tumble and then grease. Uh, it gives it a really good finish. 
So do you use the aerosol version or do you have like a tub of white lithium that you use? I have a tube and I've nice. been like, I'm, I'm as far as I can reach in that. It's tapped. So it's tapped. So I, sometimes I'll use the part and I'll get in there, but now, you know, so I got to use, I use the, uh, the spray version, but I got to get it's, it's kick, dude. I got nothing in here. I got to get some of that for sure. Yeah. It's nice. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to be doing next or not next, but not next week. I was going to say it, but next after I finish these extrusions, I'm, I'm probably going to jump on. See, part of me wants to just jump on pocket clips and get the pocket clips done. I hate making pocket clips, but doing them in the strip, how I do them where they're all ganged and they're all surfaced across and then they just tap them out. That works really well. And those are done and they're off my plate. I kind of want to do that, but don't do it. But <laughs> I do the hard should do the hardest shit first, dude. You know, I you think, have to, yeah, the pocket think, clip means nothing. If the frame doesn't, if it doesn't work, you know what I mean? Course. Part of me wants to do that. And while that's running, do all the stop pins and do all that stuff. So all of this kind of peripheral stuff is just done. And I don't have to think about it where it's like, I'm spending the next five weeks making the frames and making the blades super dialed. And then like, I have two days to make pocket clips, you know, but the difference I, is it can be done in two days. Of course. You get yeah. to the fifth line and like the, Fuck, you know, that's just yeah. straight cycle time. You know what I mean? And like, you know, I yeah. personally, I always leave clips clips to the, to the end you know and until you have a working assembly i would not yeah, now you get through it and you prove it out and it works and you're like hey okay now i'm gonna run pocket clips i'll get into frames towards the tail end i'll have the cycle time you know that gives the machine still running while i'm able to sit there and start to assemble knives and be finishing and having spindle up time i can understand that but you for sure at the very least have to prove out your fixture that you want to make prove out that your primary is machine how you want and your blades are finished and prove out a set of frames. I would probably go through and prove out an entire assembly before running all your parts and realizing you need to make a change. You know what yeah, I mean? That's true. Cause I, I only have enough, I only have enough material right now for probably, well, I only had enough material for 15 blades yep. um, because this tab is so big on the bottom. Um, I yep. would have been able to fit like 20, but I'm sacrificing blades because I do want this rigidity. That's an issue that everybody has that machines blades because they put the tab on the top yeah, and then they surface, they surface the primary. I used to do this too. It surfaced the primary. The first side's great. You do the second side and there's nothing supporting it. I've had edges actually just curl completely curl over. Yeah, and then I'm picking them on the bench and I'm smacking them back flat before heat treat, you know, and then they go to heat treat and then they, they warp. So with this, it adds all the rigidity for that. It also helps for surface grinding nothing can tip. Um, and then if you're stoning or you're lapping, you don't get that big rolled over edge right there on the thin section because you're yep. still contacting the paper or the plate up here. Uh, overall, this system has worked out way better than anything that I've done in the past. Uh, and then if, you know, when I stand them up, you know, the end mill is going right above that and it's just hitting the side right on an angle with just a simple 2D con or a trace on this because I got to come up the belly. Um, but the tool path is really just a simple curve and then another curve. Uh, but I've, I've done where I have support material on the bottom to try and alleviate some of that bounce where I'll surface a negative of this on the fixture for the second side. And that yep. always sucks too, because you take a couple extra thou off here, you're still not, not supported or you take well, off you there. There, and now the whole thing's sitting too high. And it's, it's personally, I think it's a terrible system doing it that way. And this for me at least has been the best way of making machine blades. It allows like you to it. lay them flat and surface it. It allows you to stand them up and profile it if you want. Um, the only issue is there was something that I was thinking about the other day that may be an issue, but I, you know what? I left enough clearance on here that it doesn't matter. So really, I, moving forward, uh, this one I surfaced. I surfaced the whole thing with a, just a ball yep. in, in mill because I had one in there. Normally, if I'm surfacing this stuff, I'll use a bull nose to get the surface footage up higher. Um, but moving forward on all the ones, because I'll have the fixtures done at that point, I'll rough them on an angle. So they'll, yep. they'll sit up on an angle and I'll just rough them with a half inch in mill. Um, and they'll be much faster. This took like, I think nine minutes per side and uh, standing them up. It takes less than two minutes for both sides. Um, and that was, yeah. So like almost 20 minutes to surface this thing. And that should be like two minutes standing up. So that'll be Once much you get better. A way, surface finish. That's way easier to clean up, you know, side mill, exactly. you know, side milling tool marks versus like the scallops of stepping over with a bull nose you almost have a machine finish off the machine that's serviceable if you tumble it, you know, versus with the, the, with that, you almost have to stone it and sand it to get it smooth. 
Yeah, or you got to do a really, really small step over to get your cusp pipe tiny. Uh, yeah, you're is, shooting that for that one tenth cusp pipe, but even like a three eighths, even if you use a three eighths ball, it's only like seven thousandths to maintain a one tenth, one tenth, tenth scalabite. Mm. So it's like no, yeah. no matter which way you slice it. And then if you're using a big tool like that, your tab has to be even more offset. So you're not running into it as the end mill's running off the edge of the blade. People don't think about this stuff. You exactly. Know? And that's why this thing is so big because I did lay it flat and I left a quarter inch gap between the edge of the blade and basically where the tab starts. Uh, standing it up though, you don't need that much room because the bottom of the tool only has to go 10, 15 whatever the, the edge. Whatever the bull nose corner is needs exactly. to clear the end. You don't need it on the bottom because it's fairly straight. Uh, but you need some clearance up in the front because the leading edge of the tool, you know, is going to step off further edge, to be able to maintain the tangency while it comes yeah. off. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but there's still plenty of support on this whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, we just hit the hour mark. Um, I, I could go on all day long. I think, I mean, we talk about this all the time and I probably bring it up just being conscious about this stuff, but I think we're going to probably just naturally get into this flow a lot better. And I think answering the questions kind of how we did uh, was cool or we know kind of what people are asking about and we can just talk about them and kind of answer them without specifically calling out a very specific question. Um, yeah. It's nice to be able to look at the list and be like, okay, what's actually kind of playing into what we're talking about and then just segueing right into it. Exactly. Yeah, that we're worked out good. Good. yeah. Yeah. You're right. So that I, did creep up on us though. That hour peeled right off. I mean, I think we probably just can quickly jump into the, what do you have going on for the week ahead? I know we just talked quite a bit about it, but yeah. So yeah, I'm going to knock out um, these extrusions over the next day probably day and a half. There's two different sizes. So once those are done, while those are running, I'm going to be saw cutting titanium for the frames. Um, so once those are out, I'm basically going to just jump on frames, probably make, because I have, I have this one already. I could just put this back in my fixture that I already have made my general one and finish it. So it's completely done. Um, and then finish a set of frames and then I can fit all this stuff together. I do because I'm retarded. I have to sharpen this blade before it will even close in the frame all the way too. That's how close the frame is. So I probably could just put clearance I in there. Make you a set of test frames that has clearance to be able to test fit the shit. So test frames is probably what I'm going to do first. Uh, and then you can carry that. You can carry that motherfucker yourself. Exactly. So I'm probably going to do that actually absolutely first is make test frames or a test fixture for the frame that mimic the frames, um, kind of a virtual condition of that. And then, uh, and then finish this blade. So, and then jump into frames. But I think frames are my goal for this week, for sure. Finishing Smart, this man. blade and then and doing some blade or doing some frames. I do need to finish, excuse me. I do need to finish the design of how the lock bar is going to assemble in the frames. That's one thing that I've been on the fence about a lot because I don't want screws going all the way through it. Um, I'm not doing a typical frame lock. I'm going to do an inset lock uh, because I want to make frames out of different materials i don't want to do a full liner it's just literally going to be an insert inside the frame um, that and honestly it solves a lot of problems too especially with that knife because you have the relief on the inside of the frame that dialing that in when it's encapsulated on all four sides like when i made the ones i made i had it's to make tough. some really it's hard man because you're really I was adjusting radiuses and thicknesses and you know trying to you know you have because it's like right on where your frame steps down for the pocket clip there's not mm -hmm. the, the fulcrum point is not just a, a continuous area. It was a really big pain in the ass to get like the detent of the lock bar pressure dialed in. So yeah. if you have that inset and you can just do a traditional like 42 thousandths like lock bar relief and like keep your action dialed that way, you're probably going to have a lot easier time. It's going to be much easier. It's going to be much cleaner. I don't have to send the frames out for wire. Um, I don't want to mill them because I don't like big gaps in there. Uh, I was originally going to wire them and then I was going to use some U and V action in there to come across and then undercut a section to create the over travel stop which you know i don't know if anybody's ever done that and if you're in a position to be using wire edm i mean feel free but i don't think the average people are gonna be doing that. but nope. um i don't want to inset i don't want to put a lock insert onto oh, an insert see, lock bar you were gonna fourth axis cut the lock bar cut so that it almost <laughs> had like an angular stop where it couldn't travel past whatever the clearance is exactly. for the thickness so you're gonna have your ten thousandths wide track which is gonna let it run up but and the then bottom's gonna move out of the way yep so yep. the top would stay i mean the top would have to move a little bit to maintain that straight look but the bottom would come out out of the well, out of the way a little bit and create an undercut under the frame yep. so lock bar can't over travel that's cool um, so there's no 
like the integral that I did that was TIG welded, that one had a key cut section in there. The um, only problem you'd ever have is if you put too much lock bar tension on the lock bar, you'd you never be able to push out. it the other way to remove that <laughs> tension. So don't put too much tension on your lock bar. Anyways, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna dive into this too hard. We're gonna peel off. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, I'm gonna frames for sure for me. That's primary fixture and frames. frames. Thing. Nice. Week. I'm finishing up max stuff this week, planning out my uh my builds for the maker syndicate um show uh chatting with logan from northwest blade works slash coal iron works he's going to be coming up here because we made some uh stainless damascus in indiana about two months ago and he's going to come to town and we're going to build some knives with that our bro mascus collab that we're doing and that's actually going to be debuted at indianapolis he lives just outside of indianapolis so he's going to be at the table with me so we're trying to set that up um and yeah, just kind of status quo around here. Not a lot of new implementation. Just we're going to test the the processes that I got in place last month for Portland and see if Mac production slash custom production stuff can run in uh, parallel with one another like it did last month, but better and uh, see if we need to make any adjustments. So that's where I'm at for this week. Sounds like we both got a, a full plate ahead of us. But uh, thank you, everybody, for ch uh, checking in with us this week. It was uh, our pleasure to uh, kind of chat with you and, and test this uh this new approach to answering questions and stuff like that. If you have any uh, feedback or, um, you know, want to chit chat with us, feel free to contact us individually at our Instagrams. I'm hmc.knives, Ken is Zodiac Engineering. We also have the Sharpen Perspectives podcast uh, Instagram account where you can feel free to reach out and uh, mm -hmm. touch base with us. But uh, yeah, buddy, it was good chatting with you. I look forward yeah, to sure. uh, connecting with you next Monday uh, and uh, hopefully you have a great week. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Later, homie. See ya.